Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. And today we're talking about trade, and in particular, transatlantic trade and the role of the EU. Our guest today is Denis Fredonet, who is the Chief Trade Enforcement Officer at the European Commission. The CTEO is a new post created by the Commission to strengthen the enforcement of EU trade agreements. Welcome. We're happy to have you. Thank you. Great to be with you. Over the last few years, there have been increased trade tensions between the EU and U.S., including U.S. steel and aluminum tariffs. And recently, negotiators agreed to a resolution to the longstanding Boeing-Airbus dispute. What do you see as the major challenges from both sides that need to be resolved? Well, I think we've been doing quite well recently in terms of dealing with some of the legacy issues, trade irritants that had accumulated over the last few years. I think it was a necessary first step. But we've got to build a forward-looking agenda. We feel that forward-looking agenda probably lies in trying to have a conversation which enables us to make sure that we find the right interaction between our emerging regulatory frameworks when it comes to the digital economy and the green transition. These are going to represent and require a lot of regulatory developments on both sides. It's very important to have a framework to be able to work at seeing those frameworks converge. I think that's the whole purpose of the newly established Trade and Technology Council, which has met and which is uh, right now ongoing uh, its work ahead of a second uh, political level meeting under these auspices on on which we we place, of course, great, great importance. Denise, I want to come back a little bit on the Trade and Technology Council. I had the pleasure of having a joined uh, ambassador Oh, I'm going to get his name wrong. I'm sorry. The new uh, Dubrovsky, the new trade ambassador. Yep, that's right. He's our trade trade minister. Yes, yeah, sorry, trade minister. Uh, when he was in Washington, right before the TTC meeting, and uh, really very impressive person, and, and really seemed like he was focused on the right things for the TTC. But part of the motivation, not certainly not all of it. Part of the motivation, I think, I see for the TTC is you know we need to make sure that we are getting most of our tensions resolved, if you will, so that we can collectively focus on the bigger challenge, which is the role of China and the threat of China to the global trading system. And what I mean by that is not not China inherently per se as a country, but China in terms of its trade practices that uh, historically have distorted trade. And the, the fact that the commission has now taken important steps in this direction, appointing you as the head of enforcement and talking about a number of different EU measures that could address this, including on subsidies, which maybe we can go into. Anyway, can you just sort of generally talk about that? What's going on? Where do you see all this going? Uh, It seems to us from this side of the pond, a pretty positive development. I I think we are very clear that there are uh, unfair trading practices, problematic non-market policies in China that need to be addressed and are not actually currently addressed adequately uh, within the existing rules-based trading system. I think this is a view that we do share with the United States. We've we've said that on on several occasions uh, in in political frameworks, 
for example, the now newly resumed trilateral ministerial process between the US, Japan and EU trade ministers. But we have indeed been developing our own policies and tools in order to make sure that we fill the regulatory gaps that are there, uh, again, to, to protect our, our interests. I, I'm, it's, it's great that you asked me this question because we do have the sometimes sense that there's perhaps an impression in D.C. that the EU is not willing or capable of stepping up in terms of trying to develop uh, the necessary tools to counter unfair trading practices from any third country, but China in particular, given the challenges that it throws at the trading system. Uh, and, I, I, and I think that's not quite quite right. I think if you look at some of the developments, you, you were mentioning subsidies. Let me just say first that we should not forget that we are pretty robust and assertive users of traditional trade defense. I want to you know, point out a few things here. We have a large number of anti-dumping orders in place vis-a-vis -vis China. We are starting to counter distortions in important sectors. Uh, very recently, anti-dumping orders were imposed on imports from China of optical fiber cables. Now, you know, that is an important product for the development of the digital economy in Europe. And we do not want to see the, the transition, the digital transition or the green transition being built on the basis of dumped imports from China. And we will take the necessary measures to go against this. We have uh, uh, also been taking measures which I think uh, use the flexibilities that we have under trade defense instruments to cater new forms of distortions. We have notably countervailed cross-border financial support from China, what we call transnational subsidies, subsidies that are actually coming from China that are imported into the EU via third countries. We've had a case with respect to glass fiber uh, from Egypt, where we considered that what we have countervailed are actually Chinese subsidies, which would be through special economic zones established in third countries. We see that pattern out there. And we are taking, in some cases, traditional trade defense measures to deal with those kinds of more complex forms of uh, subsidies uh, and distorted imports that we're seeing from, from China. And finally, I mean, the, the problem with uh, the subsidy issue is that the, 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 the rule book is insufficient, right? So we are of the view that the current trade rules relating to subsidies, the anti-subsidy uh, and countervailing measure agreement, is basically insufficient, unfortunately. Uh, you know, essentially, it's efficient with respect to export contingent subsidization. It doesn't cover services. The remedies are prospective. You know, so there's a range of reasons why the is insufficient. Now, what we need to do is twofold. We need to probably try to put ourselves back into the direction of actually augmenting these, exist these, these existing international rules on subsidies. And for this, we will need to join up, probably EU, US, other players, and get China at a negotiating table on this issue. And at the same time, we've got to have autonomous measures to close the regulatory gap where necessary. That's why we've also introduced or proposed to our legislative branch in Europe a new foreign subsidies instrument which is designed to deal with distortions from Chinese subsidies in the internal market, where those subsidies flow through foreign direct investment 
and not through the importation of goods, which is, the, of course, the limitation of traditional uh, uh, countervailing uh, instruments. So we're equipping ourselves there with a new uh, with a new instrument to close what we consider is a is a regulatory gap. This is under uh, discussion in front of the legislative branch. Expect this to be coming into force as part of the EU enforcement toolbox relatively soon, and it will be uh, an important addition to the uh, uh, to that toolbox. That's a really great description and what you're doing. Very impressive. ITIF actually filed there. There was a re- uh, you know, request for comment. I don't know what, can't remember what the commission calls it. And we filed about, maybe about a year ago on that. I do want to ask you a little bit on one question on anti-dumping. Um, it's good to hear you say that you don't want to build your green or digital economy on subsidized goods. Because I know that certainly in the U.S. and I believe in Europe, there, there was sort of this period, this kind of, I don't know, kind of Larry Summers-like view where if the Chinese are dumb enough to sell us solar panels at a discount, uh, we're the ones that benefit. Problem with that was that they decimated the U.S. and you know a lot of the European, particularly German solar industry, they decimated it. Uh, the Germans and the U.S. others were much more innovative than the Chinese. So we did a big report on that and found that the solar patenting peaked in 2010 and it's been down ever since. Uh, so the idea is somehow that subsidized trade is okay. Uh, I, I just, yeah, we always found that problematic, not real trade, but so I'm glad to hear you say that. But I do have a specific question on dumping. In the U.S., one of the problems with using an anti-dumping uh, tool is that you have to prove harm. And by the time you've proven harm, you're halfway to the grave, uh, oftentimes with a firm. And I'm just curious, do you have the same standard in the U.S. or can you, and in Europe, or can you say this is just simply dumping and we expect it to cause harm? No, I mean, the, the instruments are governed by, by international rules on, on trade defense instruments. So, so we do have uh, to be evidence-based uh, and, and provide due process with respect to proving that there is dumping, that there is injury, and that there is causality. And there is a certain standard there. It doesn't prevent us, I think, from, from, from being able to use the tool. It's incumbent, of course, on public authorities to be reactive enough, nimble enough, understand what's going on in terms of how different types of distortions, again, are slowly morphing and changing in nature to be able to, to be active. We, it's true, probably in the past, we, we have not done that enough and, and systematically, um, you know, somebody was telling me the other day that we did used to have, uh, you know, magnesium refining capacity in the EU, which we don't have anymore. And therefore, we're hugely dependent on China today. Now, that, that industry has gone. Perhaps at that point in time, there would have been a basis for protecting that industry if it was subject to dumping. But we're looking forward. I, I was mentioning the example of optical fiber cables because, you know, it, was diffi- it is difficult to establish dumping and injury in a in a in a market and product of this kind, not least because it's not your traditional commoditized type product, and the transactions uh, take place through tenders. So it makes the, the anti-dumping investigation, yeah, harder, more complicated, and you need to put resources in order to get to a a credible and solid result. We have adopted adopted uh, 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 measures. Uh, in this area after several months of investigation. Same for, uh, for example, in steel. Take stainless steel. We have a lot of anti-dumping orders in place. 
with respect to dump imports of stainless steel. That is important. It's an industry that is going to be playing a role, inevitably, that part of the industry, in the transition towards green steel. So we must be mindful that these industries are not just industries of the past, but also industries of the future. And that's why we have a certain legitimacy in deploying our, 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 trade, uh, our trade defense instruments vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis them. When it comes to the proposed foreign subsidy regime, how do you make sure that this does not sweep up all government aid for business, such as support for clean energy, R&D, for example, and rather have it focus on real abuse, especially from countries like China that engage in massive production subsidies? That's right. I think we've got, we've got, to, have a, we've got to put our focus on the most harmful and, and egregious forms of, of distortions uh, that, that are out there. I think that there is a fundamental difference between some of the distortions we're seeing from non-market jurisdictions like China and perhaps what's going on in terms of natural government intervention in the economy that we're seeing in market economies. It's very clear that in China there's a much wider economy-wide distortion to the cost of capital more generally. So I think that we've got to look at and focus on what is really the sort of dark amber box of subsidies that we really need to discipline better. At the same same time, we believe that, yes, probably we need to look as part of a balance to this into approaches of perhaps reintroducing a green box in this set of uh, uh, future uh, subsidy uh, disciplines. But I, I think I would just add perhaps one thing is that Problem subsidies is one thing. We see other forms of distortions uh, that need to be tackled. Forced technology transfer, clearly issues that remain a concern to us. And beyond subsidies, I think the questions of the behavior of state-owned enterprises in the economy is also something that can be subject to behavioral rules and disciplines. And we believe these are the sorts of rules and disciplines around the notion of competitive neutrality that we should try uh, to develop and that we should try to push into the, the global rulemaking agenda. You mentioned uh, this, this notion of competitive neutrality and, uh, and, and subsidies. And, you know, it seems, it seems that with China, exactly what you're saying, that the degree of subsidies, the, the size is, is so much bigger. Do you think, and, and, then, and then you mentioned, you know, maybe we need to do something with green. I'm just curious about... I know that CBAM, what, what, what's the, the term CBAM, Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, is, is one that uh, people talk about. ITIF just came out with a report endorsing the idea of carbon-based tariffs, but not the CBAM itself, which we thought was problematic as it gets down to the individual steel plant that was made and all that. So we do think that there needs to be some sort of carbon adjustment tariffs that, that, that would make it so that countries like the EU or the U.S. really, uh, who are doing things, aren't, aren't, aren't hurt by countries that aren't. I'm just curious how you see that working out. Do you think there's an opportunity for the U.S. and the EU to compromise on that and come to some agreement that we could all move forward with together? So I think in terms of carbon border adjustment, I mean, just to be clear, I think we see that measure as something which is really a response to a very specifically identified problem, which is it is a response to the problem of carbon leakage, not a general issue of competitiveness. It's a carbon leakage problem solving mechanism, if, if you want. At the time when we on the EU side are increasing our, our green ambitions and the level of ambition 
in terms of decarbonization of, of, of the economy. I think in terms of how that's going to play into international trade relations, uh, I think it will depend very much on what are the evolving frameworks that different countries are going to, to be using and developing in this area. We will see with the US what is going to be exactly the direction of travel of the United States on, on these issues. And I think it's as we augment our level of ambition in terms of decarbonization, as other countries perhaps do the same, then it'll then then we will have to work on the question of convergence of these kinds of, of, of border adjustment uh, me- mechanisms. But you know, before we get there, you were talking about the question of scale of, of subsidization. I mean, let's let's you know, if you go back to the distortions we're, we're seeing, for example, out of China in key in key industrial sectors. This is this is fairly well documented. I mean, we have been in the context of the uh, OECD Trade Committee uh, supporting work that the OECD Secretariat has been doing, looking at the question of market distortions in key sectors, aluminium, semiconductor. In aluminium, the OECD study looks at a number of Chinese producing and exporting firms, which represent a very significant part of the sector, and the. the, the the analysis shows that these are concerns that are that are subsidized to the tune of 15 to 20% of their turnover. So that is massive, and that, of course, will inevitably have trade-distorting effects. So we've got to deal with this problem of scale of, of the subsidy issue uh, and certain new forms of subsidization as well. Non-market equity injections, uh, for example, are an issue which is important. We're seeing that this is constitutes a, a policy and we'll have to figure out how to deal with them uh, uh, intelligently through, through trade remedial tools as, uh, as necessary. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned there's, you know, the, one of the things about, to me, the Chinese uh, policies on this is there's so many different ways that they subsidize. It's not just writing a check. It's multiple, multiple ways. One of the things I, I wrote recently was a um, Somebody had done an analysis of Chinese-backed venture funds, and some of these are owned by the government, some of these are private, but they're, and the amount of capital under management was bigger than the GDP of the Netherlands. And you think about that, I mean, holy geez, that's, you know, that's just the government writing checks to then basically invest in in these Chinese companies, and they claim it's private sector, but but it really isn't. Um, so, Denise, maybe to just wrap up, I know we're, we don't want to take up too much of your time. You mentioned at the very beginning the, the new trade and technology and trade council, which we wrote a recent analysis or proposal of, and we thought it's really positive. I think it's really can do a lot. USTR, uh, Catherine Tai has talked a lot, talked about working more closely with the EU, with you vis-a-vis the WTO uh, reform issues. We're also obviously in the TTC talking about areas of working together. A couple of kind of high-level areas you think we can move forward with on this, uh, particularly vis-a-vis China? Yeah, for, for us, this question of reforming the WTO is absolutely central because, again, the issue is making sure that we remain within a stable, predictable, rules-based system. That's got to be the baseline. In, within which we can actually have everybody under the tent. I mean, it is very important that we maintain a functioning rules-based uh, multilateral trading system with the WTO at its center. If anything, because we've got to work on absorbing China and other players 
differently and better inside that system. So in order to do that, you need to have actually a vibrant and, and, and functioning system. So in terms of WTO reform, I mean, we, we feel that we, we need to have a, a very serious root and branch review of, of all functions of the WTO. Starting with the rulemaking function, you've got to have a system which enables more global rules to deal with global problems. Now, that means the WTO needs to try to get a number of things done. There's an ongoing negotiating agenda with respect to sustainability, notably fishery subsidies. We think that this has to be done. It's a question of credibility for the WTO to move forward. We think that these questions of new augmented disciplines to deal with non-market policies and practices are things that have to find their way into the rulemaking machine because ultimately this is how they're going to you know you know become become effective we need in order to deal with some of these distortions we need a number of tools and some of them are the ones that I've been talking about that we're developing domestically autonomous tools but we need also rules. And for us, it's not rules or tools, it's rules and tools. And we hope that this is a, a, a fundamental platform on which we're going to continue to move forward with, with the U.S. administration. And I would say, finally, the dispute settlement arm of the WTO matters a lot to us. We think it's very important because we need via a functioning dispute settlement arm in WTO to preserve the primacy of international economic law. If not, we have a gap. We have a hole in the system. We need to make sure that that gap is now filled. We're ready to consider, as we have said before, a structural reform of the dispute settlement arm over a whole range of issues in which the way the system is organized. We want to maintain a binding two-step adjudicative system in the WTO Within those parameters, we are ready to, to engage in a, in a process of reform. So we're very much looking forward to see U.S. leadership also on the question of WTO reform going forward. There's so much areas of, of, of real promise, real importance here. And, uh, you know, for a long time, we were in this, I, I don't know, maybe hopeful phase that maybe China's going to do well. And then there was the Trump uh, interlude where it was kind of people were just stuck and doing things. And hopefully now we're at a place where we can move forward together and really make positive changes. So Denise, thank you so much for being here. It was really great to hear more about how you're thinking about that and what the EU is planning to uh, move forward on. Thanks for the conversation. Much appreciated. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. And with more episodes and great guests lined up, new episodes will drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in. 